Hey, Rarecast listeners, join us for Global Genes Live, a rare patient advocacy unsummit, September 14th to the 25th. This two-week virtual event will feature a variety of interactive and educational events, meetups, workshops, and performances. Whether you're a rare disease veteran or new to the community, we invite you to connect and engage with us and others through interactive activities. To learn more, visit globalgenes.org forward slash live. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis is a family of lung diseases characterized by scarring and thickening of lung tissue, leading to an irreversible loss of lung function and reduced life expectancy. In normal times, the dry and persistent cough the condition can cause can have a big impact on a person's quality of life. But in the midst of a pandemic where coughing is a sign of infection, it can be particularly isolating. Respivant Sciences is developing an experimental therapy that treats IPF patients who suffer from a persistent cough. We spoke to Bill Gerhardt, CEO of Respivant, about IPF, what life with the condition can be like, and the company's experimental therapy to treat it. Bill, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. We're going to talk about idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, uncontrollable bouts of coughing that the condition can cause, and a a treatment Respivant is developing. Let's start with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, though. For listeners not familiar with the condition, what is it? Sure, yeah. So idiopathic, as most people may know, means unknown cause. Pulmonary fibrosis, obviously fibrosis in the lung. Fibrosis, the best way to think about that is as a scarring that occurs in the lung that prevents gas exchange from incurring efficiently. So in other words, you're not getting as much oxygen into the bloodstream and you're not eliminating carbon um, uh, dioxide or other uh, uh, byproducts that need to get out. And and so that can lead to some serious problems for patients. Pulmonary fibrosis is a broad category that can refer to a number of different lung scarring that has occurred because of a drug exposure or radiation or uh, some type of autoimmune disease. Uh, and in the case of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, all of those other causes of fibrosis have been excluded. And so you end up with this basket of patients uh, referred to as idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, or as we will refer to it in this uh, podcast, IPF. And it's not very well uh, understood or known, even though uh, there are uh, a, an estimated 200,000 people in the U.S. alone and more than two or three million globally who have this condition, it does take 
uh, a while for it to get diagnosed. It often gets misdiagnosed as asthma or COPD or some other uh, respiratory disease, but eventually they get an accurate diagnosis. And unfortunately, the prognosis is not very good. Three to five year life expectancy post uh, diagnosis, which makes it uh, a worse prognosis than any cancer other than pancreatic cancer and lung cancer. These patients uh, usually, um, as I mentioned, have about three to five years of life expectancy. There are 30 to 40,000 uh, IPF patients who who die from their disease annually, which is on the par of how many uh, women die from breast cancer every year. So it's a, it's a serious, serious uh, lung disease that affects a lot of people in the U.S. and around the world. And how intense are, are these coughing bouts, and what's the physical toll they can take on a patient? Well, imagine for a moment that you've been diagnosed with this terminal disease, and on top of the huge ex- stress that you're experiencing living with this prognosis, you can't perform normal everyday activities because you're fatigued, you have difficulty breathing, and because you have a dry, non-productive, unrelenting cough that can destroy your quality of life. You can't walk, you can't talk, you can't laugh, you can't go outside because you're worried it will provoke a really bad cough that you can't stop. As I mentioned, life expectancy of three to five years for these patients, and most of them are coughing all day long, some of them up to 100 times an hour on average for the rest of their life until they die. It's painful. It's miserable. It's scary. They can't get enough air in their lungs to even excel. Uh, and create a cough because when they get in the cough bout, it's just one cough right after another. And many believe that their cough increases the progression of their fibrosis. It's embarrassing. Coughing around others invites stares, rude comments, and even abuse. People treat them like lepers. It can be financially devastating because they aren't able to go to work and be around other people, or certainly not to be around public. I had a minister tell me he had to stop doing weddings because he couldn't risk coughing in the middle of a ceremony all over the bride. Uh, And if you rely on public transportation, especially as a result of the public being hypersensitized against those who cough as a result of this pandemic, it's going to be challenging just to take a bus or a subway in order to get to work. And then finally, it's debilitating. Many state that their cough is the most debilitating aspect of their disease, not only physically, but also psychosocially. Many of us are experiencing staying at home and socially isolating for the first time. IPF patients with this 
chronic cough have been practicing this for a while. And now with the pandemic, they're even more locked down. So all of this, as you can imagine, leads to anxiety, stress, depression. In other words, a really crummy quality of life. That you, this is the life of an IPF patient. You mentioned the pandemic a moment ago. I'm wondering, have you heard from patients at all at, at how being in public uh, has been in in the midst of this pandemic and and how people treat them if they start coughing? Yeah, no, it's a great question, Danny. These patients were socially ostracized before the pandemic, and now it's a log or two uh, levels higher in terms of the impact on their life. They know that people view those who cough as being a threat. And cough is the most effective means by which a virus can spread. And this is obviously a very serious pandemic and a very serious consequences for people who get infected, particularly those that have either underlying respiratory disease or immune compromised systems. But we've been talking to patients recently, and they've been telling us that the if it was a five on a scale of one to 10 before, it's a seven, eight, or nine in terms of the severity and impact on their lives in two ways. One is the anxiety level associated with going out in public is a lot higher. And then the stress that they experienced from people who uh, are looking at them as though they are spreading a communicable disease is a lot it's a lot worse and they're getting more comments and people are really starting to be very aggressive in what they say to them. And these patients can't wear a mask very well, like you or I, I mean, you probably have worn a mask and have had difficulty breathing when you've had to walk upstairs or do any kind of physical exertion. Imagine for a moment that you're an IPF patient, you're, it's like, they describe it like, trying to breathe through a straw in normal conditions. Now you put a mask on top of them and they have a hard time getting enough oxygen in with a mask on just sitting still. And now imagine starting to cough. Well, these patients have to remove the mask while they're coughing in order to get enough oxygen in uh, while they're coughing. And people look at them like you're just weaponizing a virus and, and you're going to kill me. Uh, how dare you not? be wearing a mask, much less be coughing in my vicinity. So, so they're very concerned about it. And they also worried that, that while maybe someday soon the pandemic will be over, that the institutional memory that the public will have around their awareness of how viruses can most efficiently be, um, uh, shared or, or uh, uh, spread is by coughing and, and they're concerned that this is their new normal, which is that this uh, hypervigilant public and hypersensitized public against those that cough will persist even beyond the pandemic and that their life will be all that much more constrained and all that much more difficult. How is IPF treated today and 
do existing therapies address the persistent cough or do patients do anything differently to, to treat that aspect of the condition? Yeah, no, it's a good question. For a long time, there were no therapies at all available or approved for treating this condition. But fortunately, about five years ago, there were two drugs approved simultaneously that had demonstrated the ability to slow progression of the underlying disease. And those two drugs are widely prescribed to these patients. They, while both having providing efficacy, both come with some significant side effects, rash, uh, nausea, diarrhea. And so while most patients are able to tolerate those drugs, many of them are not and have to cycle off. And for those patients that can stay on those therapies, none of them notice any difference in their quality of life. Certainly no reduction in fatigue or breathlessness or to your point, cough. They're taking those medicines in the hope that it slows down the progression of the underlying disease, but it doesn't make them feel better. In fact, in many cases, it makes them feel worse. So there aren't any approved therapies for IPF that improve quality of life in any way, including reducing cough. Now, there are other medicines that patients with chronic cough can sometimes take. If you have a mild cough, then an OTC uh, medicine that is commonly used to treat cough might help you. If you have a more severe cough, then the only things that are available are neuromodulators like gabapentin or an opioid or uh, sometimes a steroid is is tried. In many cases, even those serious medicines don't have an effect and provide any treatment benefit for these patients. Uh, and to the extent that they do, they often come with unacceptable side effects. And so patients will cycle on or off depending on their ability to tolerate those side effects. The bottom line is, is that there's a significant unmet need for better treating cough in a safe and effective way for these patients. But it's not an easy thing to do. There's been no new cough medicine developed and approved in more than 50 years. And it's not been because of a lack of trying. There are dozens of clinical trials for new therapies that have been conducted in patients with cough. And so far, none of them have been successful and or have been approved. And you're developing uh, an experimental therapy, RVT-1601, as a, a treatment for patients with IPF with a persistent dry cough. What is RVT-1601? It's, uh, it's an inhaled anti-inflammatory that is designed to get a large uh, concentration of this drug in the lung while minimizing systemic exposure to the rest of the body. And the reason we think this drug will be effective is because while chronic inflammation doesn't cause pulmonary fibrosis, it makes the underlying fibrosis worse. You can imagine for a moment that there's been an injury to the lung and as part of the body's 
mechanism for dealing with injuries, inflammation is produced, and normally that would help resolve the injury and you would have healthy tissue afterwards. But in the case of fibrosis, as in the case of other diseases, that body, that sort of normal immune system is dysregulated. And for whatever reason, the body is not able to repair itself. But in an effort to repair the injury, the body keeps producing inflammation, thus chronic inflammation. And that inflammation over a long period of time can lead to lots of problems. Now, along with pulmonary fibrosis, we believe, and we have demonstrated in lots of preclinical studies, that that chronic inflammation is contributing to progression of the underlying disease. It is also hypersensitizing cough receptors in the lung and lowering the threshold at which these patients cough. So by delivering this anti-inflammatory to the lung, what we have demonstrated in clinical trials is that we can significantly increase that cough threshold and reduce the frequency of coughing and improve their quality of life. And what we hope to demonstrate over the long term is that that same mechanism of action not only improves their quality of life, but actually slows progression of the underlying disease, either because they're coughing a lot less and that was contributing to progression, or because mechanistically we're inhibiting one of the biological responses into the body that's been contributing to fibrosis. We've certainly seen a lot of companies with uh, any therapy, whether it's experimental or already approved, that have mechanisms of action that address inflammation or the immune system. Uh, consider applications for COVID. This would seem like, um, as an inhaled therapeutic, it, it might be good for acute respiratory distress syndrome. Has anyone looked at that as a potential? therapy? No question that it could potentially have a significant impact for reducing the impact of a coronavirus infection. The same uh, chronic inflammation that contributes to the progression of fibrosis is what is being seen in uh, patients who show up at the hospital with COVID. As you know, there are two phases. There's the infection phase, and then there's the body's response to it, so-called cytokine storm that can lead to acute respiratory distress syndrome. And we are looking at conducting a clinical trial in COVID. It's quite daunting, however, because there are 671 clinical trials, last I looked, <laughs> all going after improving outcomes in COVID. And we've been, you know, as a small company, singularly focused on demonstrating that our drug is effective for treating these patients. But but it is something that we're looking at treating and maybe beyond COVID and, and uh, the particular uh, type of inflammation that's produced uh, when patients are infected with that virus, demonstrating that it works in COVID could also lead to the potential for developing it to treat other acute respiratory disease syndromes that are caused by other underlying lung injury. So, so it's something that we're looking at doing. What's the clinical path forward? Well, for treating cough in pulmonary fibrosis, we have just wrapped up a phase 2B study that 
was terminated early because of the challenges for recruiting and conducting studies during a pandemic. But we believe that we were able to enroll enough patients to demonstrate that not only does the drug have a robust treatment effect, but that we ha can identify the alkamol dose for taking in phase three. So success here would, for us, would, would, uh, would look like uh, in this fourth quarter, success would look like positive results that confirm earlier clinical trial results, in other words, reducing the cough frequency in IPF and improving their quality of life and enable us to identify the alkamol dose so that we can go to the FDA sometime towards the end of this year, beginning of next year, and agree on what that phase three program and then and and then prosecute that phase three program as efficiently as we can so that we can get a new therapy to patients as soon as possible. Beyond IPF cough, we have the opportunity to develop this drug and prove that it works for the broader pulmonary fibrosis population because even though IPF only comprises about half of pulmonary fibrosis indications, all pulmonary fibrosis patients to a lesser or greater extent have this similar prevalence of chronic cough that has a similar impact on their quality of life that's as hard to treat as is IPF cough for which the drug would presumably work for the same reason that it's working in IPF. And so that would be another logical extension of the program. And finally, to the extent that we see signals in a, these clinical trials that show that the drug is actually having an effect on the underlying disease, that, that it actually is modifying the underlying disease and slowing progression of the underlying disease, that'll give us the confidence and the justification and the motivation to, to conduct the larger, much more challenging, and but much more meaningful study of actually demonstrating that the drug slows progression of the underlying disease. And so if we could develop a drug that, um, that uh, is disease modifying, that doesn't have the type of side effects that the currently approved drugs uh, have and improve their quality of life, that would be a real grand slam and something we're really excited about. Respivant is one of the so-called Vants. It was created by Roy Vant around RVT-1601. Is there a pipeline behind this? Are you planning to build one? Yeah, thanks for asking. So for those that don't know, Roy Vant is a unique uh, pharmaceutical model in that instead of like the normal pharmaceutical company that licenses or discovers their own medicines and keeps them all under one roof in a centralized structure where assets and programs get prioritized uh, and obviously efficiency of R&D is not very good, Royvant has a decentralized model where they put individual programs initially into separate companies that are organized around therapeutic areas. And then they attract management teams that have expertise in that therapeutic area in order to focus initially on that first program with laser focus. And uh, then over time, start to build that pipeline either 
through expansion of the indications that that first drug is targeting or acquisition of additional clinical candidates that are synergistic with the company and its strategy. So in our case, Respivant obviously refers to a respiratory-focused company, and our mission is to develop new therapies for uh, initially pulmonary fibrosis patients in order to significantly improve their quality of life, more broadly speaking, to target respiratory diseases made worse by this chronic inflammation that I was referring to before. So at the moment, we're hyper-focused on this first indication with this first drug, but the vision for the company would be to build out that pipeline through both expanding the indications for this first drug, like I just described, as well as acquiring new drug candidates that are targeting these serious respiratory diseases. Bill Gerhardt, CEO of Respivant. Bill, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.